There's something curious about this broadcast. T-minus 10, 9, 8, 7, and we have main engine start. 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, and liftoff. This is TGP nominal. Commence episode now. All systems remain nominal. 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 Hello everybody and welcome to this special edition of TGP Nominal, your monthly look at all things science fact and science fiction. So why is this episode so special? Well, not only is it the first episode of our ninth season, but it's also our annual World Space Week podcast, which has been registered as an official World Space Week virtual event. So if you're joining us from the World Space Week website, welcome on board and I hope you enjoy your time with us. Before we carry on with the show, I'd like to wish regular contributor and co-host John Berger get well soon as he's contracted COVID. Now, from time to time, we have guest co-hosts on TGP Nominal, and joining me is someone who is no stranger to our regular listeners as they have appeared on various episodes and is one of our TGP Nominal honorary crew members. So please welcome astronomer, photographer, Aurora Chaser, movie extra the one and only will from will photography how you doing sir hiya mark how you doing not too bad did i miss anything out there well i was thinking about it and uh, i've started to take people on dolphin boat trips and puffin watching so who knows maybe uh, a puffin and dolphin tour guide Excellent. So you, you've been, uh, as you say, out on boat trips and things, but you've also recently just got back from a big trip, haven't you? Yeah. So uh, as, as I say, I, I do take people to uh, Iceland, chase Northern Lights, and it was just honestly an absolute stroke of luck. Whilst we were there, we, we knew that the aurora was going to be strong, but what we didn't know, and in fact, no one knew, there was a huge, what we call a CME, coronal mass ejection, that literally arrived on the second night we were there. And listen, I've seen the Aurora over a hundred times now, luckily, and this was definitely in the top three for me. One of the brightest ever displays of Northern Lights I've ever seen. And and the great thing is, now I I know how to use a camera better than when I first started Aurora chasing. So I was able to get some really, really awesome shots. Really, really happy. Brilliant. And you do this what, two or three times a year or something like that? Yeah, so um, I just found that just by telling everyone, hey, I'm off to Iceland, you know, I take groups, the, the number of the interest is just going through the roof. So the plan was always to do maybe two to three trips a year, just taking small groups, you know, maybe no more than 12. But this March, I've got, I'm taking over 100 people, like already have booked. Wow. You know, I'm, I'm working with the largest tour operator in Iceland where we're just going to take groups of 50 or 60 at a time. And, you know, and rightly so, you know, we're coming to the best time in the solar cycle to see the northern lights so absolutely is a bucket list thing and you know it's such a really is a good time to go and spot them I think it's on a lot of people's bucket lists uh, to get over there and see it. Absolutely. it, it ha- You know what? It really has to be. It's one of those things where I think a lot of people, and actually I, I, this happens a lot, people will see the aurora with me and, you know, they'll comment and say, listen, Will, I actually didn't really believe it. I, I didn't believe it would ever be as good as this. I thought it was only possible by camera, you know, and, and it's amazing, you know, to see them just mesmerise and almost sort of determined to tell their friends and family to say listen you need to be there you need to experience this it's a hundred percent a book on this thing would i be right in saying this year has been pretty good for people in the north of the uk to actually see it as well 
Absolutely. Like I said, I mean, it, we're approaching uh, solar maximum. Lots and lots of uh, aurora opportunities. This week, in fact, just a few days ago, I think it was probably the second day after coming back from Iceland. It was a very, very strong event and one of the best I've seen from Northumberland. So I run stargazing events, of course, in, in Twice Brood. And we had an aurora night. I got the guests outside. And you know what? There are people that stay at this hotel who are not stargazing so they just probably walkers hadrian's wall and this display at 20 past 11 uh, i think it was on a sunday night it was absolutely incredible i was just screaming and shouting i think i must have woken everyone up from me screaming <laughs> i was like <laughs> it was uh, about 20 past 11 at night and i was you know my guests were outside but yeah one of the strongest displays i've seen T to be honest though mark the aurora from the uk is a different experience to being in the arctic circle you know in iceland scandinavia you see it right above you you see it swirling you see all the colors in in the UK, you can see it, but it is often a glow in the northern horizon. And if you're lucky, you'll see a bit of movement and spikes. Sometimes you'll see the greens, but both are just as amazing. You know, they really are just as exciting. Now, while we're on the subject of Twice Brood, you've been moving steadily forward on a uh, planetarium that uh, you're building there. Yeah, so we've been working on this for a long time. It's just been delayed it's, it's uh we're building a seven meter uh, dome it's just completed actually we're, we're ready to start sort of trialing it out but it just really takes it to the next level where we'll have guests turning up for our stargazing event but we'll also have a planetarium show you know and, and i really feel it'll give people a different perspective you know to be able to zoom into different locations in the universe and hopefully blow people's minds away that's what we want. We want to inspire people to sort of help them understand, you know, how big the universe actually is, what is out there. And the planetarium will, will definitely add to it and give us an, another dimension. But yeah, we're, we're literally now only, um, we're looking to have it officially opened by the middle of November. But we are going to be trialing out. So we've got loads of guinea pigs from now till then and uh, just to smooth it out and make sure it runs, runs well. But very, very exciting times. Really exciting. Definitely. I mean, I've got my experience of planetariums. I mean, I've been to a couple. I've been to the one up your way, actually, the Life Centre in um, Newcastle. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's an awesome one. And also the Sir Patrick Moore Planetarium at the National Space Centre as well. Right. Yeah, yeah. Listen, I'm not going to lie, but I don't know about you, Mark, but every time I go to these planetariums, you're in these comfy seats, right? They're all tilted up, right? Because obviously, so you can look up. And it's dark and it's like soothing music and the voice. I struggle to stay awake. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know about it. I'm hoping that's not going to be the case when guests come and see me, you know. I'm probably going to have to add the odd lightning storm just to wake everyone up. I always find it's just a little bit too comfortable. Yeah, the first time I ever saw something like that, I think it might have been at Thought Park, back in the day when it used to be a an edutainment centre rather than a theme park. Okay. Um, they used to have um, like reproductions of um, like Roman forts and right. villages and all that kind of stuff there. But they had a um, 180 degrees dome. Mm-hmm. Um, where you could watch different things. and oh, okay. It didn't have any seats in it whatsoever, so you were standing up watching it, which was their downfall, really, because, well, literally, because people were watching things going overhead and falling over. Right, yeah, 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 that makes sense. 
disorientating. I mean, hey, actually, you fit more people in if they're standing, right? Yeah, that, that's but, true. You know? There was a lot of people in there. More people in there, less chance of falling over, I guess. That's right. The sardines, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's another way around it, I suppose. But, uh, yeah, we're going to we're gonna get some, some seats for people. And uh, like I said, hey, if, if they fall asleep, they fall asleep, right? That's <laughs> nothing I can do about it. If your presentation's got a good soundtrack on it as well, it, it should prevent that, I think. Yeah, bit of bit of Hans Zimmer. <laughs> yeah, bit of Gustav Holst would be good. Yeah, <laughs> right. Well, I tell you what, you'll have to come up for the for the launch as well. If I can, I'd I'd love to. Definitely, definitely. Event, eventually, when we when we know when we're launching, I'll I'll let you know and uh, be great to have have you up here. As I mentioned at the beginning of the show, this is our World Space Week show, and I think it's best that before we launch this episode into the podosphere, we told people a little bit about what World Space Week is. So. World Space Week is a global celebration of science and technology and how they have contributed in making our lives better. United Nations General Assembly declared in 1999 that World Space Week will be held each year from October the 4th to October the 10th. So why were these dates chosen? Well, on October the 4th, 1957, the first human-made satellite, Sputnik 1, was launched, opening the way for space exploration. And on October the 10th, 1967, the Treaty on Principles Governing the Activities of States in the Exploration and Peaceful Uses of Outer Space, including the Moon and other celestial bodies, was signed. Now, for obvious reasons, this is now known as the Outer Space Treaty. This treaty forms the basis of international space law and that of June 2019, 109 countries are parties to this treaty, while another 24 have signed the treaty but have not completed the ratification process. Among the Outer Space Treaty main points are It prohibits the placing of weapons of mass destruction in space. It limits the use of the Moon and other celestial bodies to peaceful purposes only. And it establishes that space shall be free for exploration and used by all nations, but that no nation may claim sovereignty of outer space or any celestial body. World Space Week is coordinated by the United Nations with the support of the World Space Week Association, or the WSWA. The WSWA leads a global team of national coordinators who promote the celebration of World Space Week within their own countries. World Space Week consists of space education and outreach events held by space agencies, aerospace companies, schools, planetariums, museums and astronomy clubs around the world in a common time frame. The goals of World Space Week include providing unique leverage in space outreach and education, educate people around the world about the benefits they receive from space, encourage greater use of space for sustainable economic development, demonstrate public support for space programs, excite young people about STEM, and foster international cooperation in space outreach and education. In 2021, more than 6,000 events were organised in over 96 countries, and you are taking part in one right now just by listening to this podcast. So now you know a little bit more about World Space Week, and we'll take a short break right now, and when we return, it's time for a little bit of space news.
World Space Week is important because it creates access and opportunity for everyone to find their place in the new global space ecosystem. There has never been a time where there is more opportunity to research in and from space, both looking at worlds that are different than ours, at our history, all the way to the beginning of the universe. Teaching kids about space excites their curiosity, and I teach space exploration in my music classroom. Space is global and addresses fundamental questions for all humanity. In our domain, international cooperation is a key and the World Space Week perfectly embodies it. It invites people of all age groups from across the globe to celebrate accomplishments in space and how it benefits us here on Earth. It is bringing us all together. Space is the one portal of progress and knowledge that has the power to unite all of humanity. It is only from space that we can see and understand the Earth as a single connected and precious resource. We can improve weather forecasts even further with satellites. Why? Because it inspires. Because the more people we get involved, the more successful we're all going to be. An opportunity to connect and collaborate as one united space family. And I want to say how much we support World Space Week and how committed we are to equal opportunity in every part of our business. We are, by nature, explorers. The same curiosity that sends us to the stars at the speed of thought urges us to go there in reality. And whenever we make a great new leap, we elevate humanity, bring people and nations together, usher new discoveries new technologies. So remember to look up at the stars and not down at your feet. Be curious. I'm Chris Lintot and you're listening to TGP Nominal. This is TGP Nominal. Welcome back to TGP Nominal. As I mentioned before the break, Will and I are going to give you our take on a few space-related news stories, and I'm going to kick things off with a story that may sound like it isn't very spacey. Sheik, co-founder and producer behind some of the world's most astronomical dance hits, including Daft Punk's Get Lucky and David Bowie's Let's Dance, Niall Rogers, has recently celebrated his 70th birthday. What has this got to do with space, you might be asking? Well, he has had an asteroid named after him as a birthday gift. The namesake asteroid, called Nile Rogers, or one word, 191911, is located around 300 million miles away from wherever you're sat listening to this on Earth, and is approximately one and a quarter miles wide and takes just under six years to orbit our planet. The potato-shaped asteroid was first discovered in April 2005 and was officially renamed thanks to the generosity of Nile Rogers' friend Simon Lowry, who is a uh, communications specialist at the European Southern Observatory in Chile, and he is also affiliated with the International Astronomical Union. 
In addition to this, the award-winning guitarist and producer marks his 70th birthday by donating one million American dollars to the We Are Family Foundation charity, which he set up in 2004. That's pretty amazing when you can uh, have something named after you, isn't it, Will? I, I'm, I'm not being funny, but ever since I was a child, I was like, I would love, you know, the dream is having a comet named after you, an asteroid, a, a lunar crater named after you. So, I mean, it's just awesome. And the thing is, there's so many asteroids out there. There's like more asteroids out there than there are people. So really, <laughs> we should all be named, you know, we should all at least get one, you know, uh, an asteroid named after us, right? You know, it shouldn't just be, I mean, I'm, I'm not jealous at all, obviously, you can tell, but um, there's more than enough. And yeah, so cool. I mean, especially this one as well. It's so big. He'll be buzzing, absolutely buzzing with that. There's been others that have been named after, I think Freddie Mercury's got something named after him and I'm sure David Bowie has as well. Oh, amazing. I think the cool thing as well, I haven't checked. I don't know the magnitude or how bright this uh, asteroid gets. How cool would it be if he got to, I'm sure he'd be able to find it, you know, there'll be a telescope strong enough perhaps to be able to see it at, uh, at opposition, but... Um, I think seeing it in space as well would be awesome. Yeah, for sure. And it's like with, um, you know, when they found some more elements to go on the periodic table and they were trying to come up with names to, to call mm -hmm. these different things. Obviously, they're normally named after scientists and people who have invented things and planets and all sorts of yeah. different things. But I always said that if they found one which was heavy metal, they've got to call it Lemium. <laughs> Because Lemmy from Motorhead. That has to happen. <laughs> yeah. I, th I think, you know, one, one of the funniest things and one thing I, I really enjoy is that a lot of astronomers like to call things sometimes, you know, they, they don't sometimes go like too sciencey. They just keep it mm -hmm. kind of simple sometimes, don't they? And, yeah. you know, one of the very favorite ones is um, the Orion Nebula. So there's a nebula is in the constellation Orion. And I always ask like my, my, my guests, like, does anyone know what this nebula in Orion is called? And there's always like, you know, these scientific names. And I'm like, it's called the Orion Nebula. <laughs> you know, it's that's it. It's just as simple as it gets. In Australia, they tend to call things like what they are, like the Great Sandy Desert and the Great Barrier Reef and things. They don't muck about with things. They just call them as they are. Yes, it's much better that way, isn't it? Definitely, I think it's much better. It also makes me laugh, though, when you ask people what our nearest star is. Mm -hmm. And they don't realise that the sun is actually a star. Yeah, it's a really good point. And, you know, to be fair, I think... I do feel there's not enough education about astronomy. I think everyone should definitely, you know, school should do more. You know, I guess that's why, that's why I was so excited when, when people, you know, learn these things for the first time and it becomes like, oh, I didn't realise. And it's like planets, you know, a lot of people don't even know what a planet is and what, what defines mm. a planet or a moon. Don't get me started on that. Because <laughs> <laughs> you know where that's going to lead me. It's going to lead me to things like Pluto. So don't... Right, okay, okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. But it's great. It's at the edge, isn't it? We're literally just learning more, it's discovering more, and things are being redefined. You know, it's great to be still in this place. Imagine if we were we lived at a time where everything was known. Mm. Right? There was an answer to everything. There was no discoveries to be made. It's like, well, you know, it's not that exciting, is it? So, so it's great. It's great. So it's constantly evolving. That's why I say they're called theories. Mm-hmm. 
because it's a theory and theories change depending on research and findings and you know if enough people get the same findings then things have to change yeah unfortunately in some cases the good thing about what you're saying about we should be learning stuff in schools organizations like the scout movement in recent years have introduced the astronomy badge all right okay which actually ross from uk astronomy has one because they gave him an honorary astronomy badge for um giving a talk at one of the scout groups oh man i want one (laughs) (laughs) i need to think i need to speak to ross about this like ross you need me to be involved in the next one (laughs) (laughs) definitely so the next story is that nasa has revealed that it will study the possibility of running a private astronaut mission with spacex to extend the life of the hubble space telescope which i know some people will be well, why are they doing that because we've got james webb and um there's a lot of hubble haters out there at the moment and that really bothers me yeah but the thing is they work differently and together they could create some spectacular images see the problem is that hubble now circles the earth at a height of 335 miles or 540 kilometers but nasa would like to get it back up to 372 miles where it was originally positioned when it was launched in 1990 now you could add at least 15 to 20 years of orbit life into the mission if they can push it back into that altitude i think that's a dragon capsule would be capable of doing that just give it a nudge and let uh physics do the rest (laughs) pretty much until you need to stop it of course that's not all they want to do because apparently they're going to see whether um spacex might be able to send a commercial crew to hubble to replace some of its hardware so you can replace the gyroscopes and that kind of stuff and it'll be virtually brand new to be fair i think it's almost like a no-brainer you know ultimately you've got to think what are the costs involved and what are the benefits you know that could potentially come from this and you know if, if the sums add up right you know if it's i don't know how much it's going to cost but you know if you've got something that potentially a bit of maintenance or upgrades and then we could extend the life and you know who knows the thing is, Mark, right now, you know, there may be a, a sort of basic understanding of, of James Webb. These are the targets we want to look at. This is what we want to sort of analyze. But who's saying that, say, in 10 years time, Betelgeuse right, or Betelgeuse eventually does go supernova? Wouldn't it be cool to have an instrument in space that can monitor it a bit in a different way? And we'd be gutted. We'd be like, oh, if only we had Hubble, we could have found out more about it or or maybe another supernova or a black hole or anything. And I think ultimately there has to be that sort of decision based on, like I said, you know, the cost X amount, but the potential benefits far outweigh the cost. Then I really feel 100% it should be should be going for it. I mean, if, if it's an astro- pardon the pun, an astronomical ch- cost, and then it's like, well, hang on, you know, are we really going to get that much out of it? Is it really worth it? Then fair enough. But if the sums had up, I would say definitely it's exciting to, to consider, you know, keeping it. Hubble has made over 1.5 million observations, resulting in the publication of some 19,000 research papers. Wow. Well, there you are then. You know, yes, James Webb's there, and, you know, but it works differently. Yeah, well, the two different 
ends of the spectrum, aren't they? Yeah. And it's not nostalgia, you know? It's not like, oh, it's a shame, you know, that we have to get rid of it. It's kind of like the rovers on Mars. If we could extend the life on them, and then you think, well, is it worth it? And I think definitely there's a chance. And with SpaceX now, you know, not everyone's pro SpaceX, but some of the benefits are, obviously, it's a lot cheaper now, isn't it? To send rockets uh-huh. up and these guys can do it then. And they, and they seem to be pretty good at what they're doing then and cost-effective, then I think it's really exciting news if they do ex- decide to extend the life and try and make it last longer. When they released those first images from James Webb, it wasn't that well known that Hubble had released some blinding photographs at virtually the same time. And it was almost like Hubble was saying, okay, yeah, yeah, I've seen what you can do. Hold my beer, <laughs> you know? Yeah. <laughs> I've got this. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I do understand it, you know, there has to be that sort of public engagement, you know, the pretty pictures, you know, that get people go, whoa, what's out there? But for me, James Webb, for me personally, serves a very different purpose to Hubble. You know, for me, James Webb is about looking into the atmospheres of exoplanets, right? Just that, that is what I'm most excited about. Basically, yeah. the stuff that Hubble will struggle to do, which is why it's more complementary. It's not, I never felt it was to replace Hubble, which is why I feel that, um, an opportunity to keep them both or, or keep yeah. Hubble working alongside makes it a very powerful tool, isn't it? Oh, it and, definitely um, is, yeah. I tell you what, uh, just very quickly, uh, for the very first time in my life, all these years, just a few months ago, I saw Hubble uh, naked eye for the first time. You know, wow. I, I was in Spain and just saw it and uh, emotional, emotional, you know, to see it. So uh, really, really cool to spot it. And it'll be sad to think that if it, when it does retire, we'll never see it again. So it'll be really cool to see it. I'm hoping if it gets to that point, they can find some way of bringing it home Ooh. so that it could be in a museum somewhere. Yeah. That would be fantastic. Yeah. I, I hope it doesn't actually get to that stage. Well, who knows? If it extends its life, then there'll be some sort of capsule, perhaps, you know, bring it back down. Talking of the two space telescopes working in tandem, the stunning aftermath of NASA's mission to deliberately smash a spacecraft into an asteroid last month at 14,000 miles an hour has been caught on camera by Hubble and James Webb at the same time. So they both captured the views of the first ever planetary defense experiment, the Double Asteroid Redirection Test, or DART. They love their acronyms. (laughs) And its attempt to knock a space rock off course. It was the world's first test of a kinetic impact mitigation technique using a spacecraft to deflect an asteroid that poses no threat to Earth and modifying the object's orbit or as they called it on the TV show Red Dwarf a few years ago, playing pool with asteroids. (laughs) (laughs) They actually predicted this on Red Dwarf, which I thought was really cool. (laughs) So on the 26th of September at 19.14 Eastern, or uh, 14 minutes past midnight on the 27th if you're in the UK, Dart intentionally crashed into Dimorphis in the double asteroid system of Didymos. Both James Webb and Hubble simultaneously observed the same celestial target from afar and NASA has now released a time-lapse footage of the images of the impact with one expert calling it an unprecedented view of an unprecedented event. 
I will try and get hold of this time-lapse footage and put it in the show notes if I can find it. Did you watch it, Mark? I did watch it. I had the actual live feed from the actual craft itself on on the TV, and I was watching the coverage from NASA on the laptop. Nice. Nice. I missed it, actually. Uh, I, I, I was out aurora chasing. It was when the aurora was at its peak in Iceland. Right. So the aurora was going nuts for me. I, I was like, it's fine. I'll, I'll watch it, you know, on, uh, you know, online. And I was a little bit sad, actually, that I didn't sort of tune in and, and watch it effectively live. But um, I think it's really exciting, isn't it? I mean, obviously, it's going to take a few more weeks to know for sure, you know, the impact and, and sort of study how it's going to work. But listen, can, can I ask you something, right? So with these with these things, the scientists have a very good understanding of gravity and, and you know, projectiles and all this sort of stuff. Yeah. They must have an idea of what sort of results. It's all in theory, isn't it, of course? They'll be like, right, this asteroid is a certain mass, certain velocity and everything else, and we're going to, you know, hit it with you know, their dart. They can surely work out what the results are going to be, or is it is it a bit more complex? In theory, they can, yeah, but... As we know, things don't work exactly to plan mm. uh, because science isn't easy. Yeah. It, it doesn't always work as the textbook says it should. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's like with engineering or anything like that where you you know how something works you know how it works you've got the paperwork in front of you to tell you how something works you put it together as it says but it doesn't work yeah and you're like well why doesn't it work i've done exactly as it tells me to. yeah why doesn't it work it's the same with physics right yeah okay i, I am really interested in the findings I'm, I'm i'll be fascinated by it because i mean this was a i think was it a 17 meters or something you know diameter asteroid so i mean that that's tiny compared to, if you think of uh, the one that hit chelyabinsk mm-hmm. in 2013 or it was um that was 20 meters yeah. and um you know it ended up being a one meter asteroid um sorry meteorite so when we're talking about global killers you know you're talking miles in diameter but it'll be interesting to know you know how much bigger only takes a soft push okay for anything in space to actually maneuver it yeah okay um which is why you don't need that much propulsion when you're in space, obviously, getting into space, you need as much yeah. thrust as you can handle. Once you get up there, yeah, you only need these tiny little thrusters okay. to, to move here, there, and everywhere. And that's why the the fuel in these things lasts years. I yes, mean, Hubble's been up there for say thirty two years, and it's still got enough fuel if they use it wisely to for another fifteen years, maybe uh, as long as they can get it up to the right altitudes but yeah um it only takes a tiny push for something to, so you don't need a massive spacecraft to hammer something out of the way we've saved the earth but it's now taken out the moon <laughs> yeah it's really cool I, I didn't even hear about this dart mission till probably this year i don't know if you've heard about it a lot earlier or this is something that they worked on for a while it's been on my radar for a while, and I took a a test um, in the run-up to the actual launch of Dart. 
project. It was just a basic kind of questionnaire about what I actually knew about the basic physics on how this thing is going to work. And I got sent a certificate. It says, uh, this certifies that Mark Taylor is officially declared a planetary defender on NASA's double asteroid redirection test on November the 24th, 2021. Mate, you know, framed. What's that about? <laughs> I love the sort of stuff, you know. Love it. It's just, it's it's the sort of stuff that you know it engages the public, isn't it? Definitely does. I love those things where you can buy. I mean, I've got them. You know, like you can check in or get a ticket. The boarding passes. Yeah, boarding passes. I've got lots of them. I'm currently on Artemis One, so when that gets launched, I'll be on there. Mm-hmm. I was on Orion when it did its test mission. Okay. Um, I'm on Perseverance, so I'm up on Mars at the moment. Mm -hmm. Um, I was on the Parker Solar Probe. I was on the rocket that landed on that asteroid Bennu. Wow. I'm on New Horizons, so I've gone past Pluto and God knows where I am at the moment. And I was on the last ever shuttle launch. Wow, very cool. So I'm not able to get up there myself, but I'm making my presence known across the solar system. That's nice. story is experts think they have an explanation of why the seventh planet from the sun has a rotational axis so skewed that it might as well be laying down there is a mysterious moon migrating away from uranus and it may have pulled the planet over onto its side causing it to have a whopping tilt of 98 degrees from the orbital plane The researchers from the National Centre for Scientific Research in France claim it wouldn't even have needed to have been as big as a moon to have the effect. The strange tilt is not its only oddity, it also rotates clockwise, which is the opposite direction from most of the other planets in the solar system. It is actually really interesting because it does sound very, very plausible. You know, yeah. if, if you look at, you know, sort of what's happened with the other planets and, you know, why do they think like the tilt of Saturn, apparently they think is because of Titan, you know, has been generally tugging on it. And, um, you know, even Jupiter, they think is probably going to start happening with the tilt, so the, the impact of, of the moons. This is very possible because it always has been an odd one, hasn't it? Mm. You know, like tilted so greatly that only that literally is just rolling on its side. This is exactly what I was saying before, that we're literally at the edge of all these this discoveries. We're just literally trying to put everything together. There's all these clues, isn't there? Mm-hmm. Why is it like this? Why is the position like this? I mean, it's, it's just as plausible as, as the other theory, main theory, that a long time ago, something smashed into it and it tilted it on its side. It's like you say, if, if it, Titan has got enough gravitational pull to pull the planet on its side a bit, then th- there's no reason why this shouldn't be the same. I mean, the physics, it, it doesn't matter where you are in the solar system, the physics are exactly the same. Yeah, I love it. I, lo- I love this sort of stuff. You know, it, it challenges us to sort of rethink things and consider things and 
I think the interesting thing is, is why is it taking so long for someone to consider this? You know, what, why hasn't this been one of those theories that's been floating around for a while? And like I said, it's, I think it's important, you know, to always challenge the initial thoughts and formations and, you know, the orbital paths and the actual rotation themselves. Venus is another weird one, isn't it? It's a uh, day is longer than its year. Stuff like that. It's like, what's going on, you know? There was a, a, another a small story that I was going to mention about uh, the fact that Juno, the Jupiter probe, has been sending back some images of Europa, the closest images that has been produced of the moon. And Europa is one of these moons that fascinates me along with uh, Enceladus because of the fact that they are possibly the closest we might have to life. Yeah, yeah. Because of them being water-based or, well, not liquid-based, as we know, most life is produced because of, of water or a liquid form. When I say life, of course, I don't mean a humanoid uh, of any description, but, you know, it could be some kind of amoeba or something that's underneath the water. And Enceladus has got these plumes that it's producing of kind of like steam ducts. Yeah. Which is exactly like our oceans. Yes. I really believe, because don't I say it's less than 10% of the, the oceans have been explored? Yes. We could learn a lot about our planetary cousins, our, our celestial cousins, from learning about our own oceans. Um, and we can learn a lot about our own planet from other planets and moons. There's so much history, isn't there? I mean, four, four and a half billion years. Billion years, you know? And, and we've, we've only been here... It's just a very extremely small snippet, and if there are those you know, those clues, you know how the formation and, and, and different time frames, you know, looking at different planets helps us understand our world a bit better. Then I, I absolutely feel that the clues will be out there. Just different timelines, not only in the planets in our solar system, but obviously other other like exoplanets and things. Yeah. But I personally feel that we will find life you know, in the solar system soon. There will be evidence that there might, I really feel, as you say, Enceladus and, you know, Europa will be will be these key places. Most people probably think that life does exist out there anyway, but I think it will be a great thing sort of to, to sort of finally realize that, you know, life does exist outside of our planet. Yeah. You know, just, just like when we thought, you know, the, the geocentric field, you know, view that we were, were the center of the universe, I think it almost have that sort of similar impact. Life does exist elsewhere. It's too big of a place not to have other life. You know, back in the, like, maybe in the 90s, you know, when people talked about aliens or UFOs and things like that, and you'd be looked weirdly, like, what? You believe in aliens? Like, what? You know, there's aliens out there. Like, don't be silly, you know? And then, And now it's almost like... If you do not believe that life exists out there, then there's something not quite, you know what I mean? It's, but it's the aids of these, is James Webb and the Hubble and, and science that's help us understand the enormity of the world and, you know, the conditions and how life can exist. And you're right. I mean, it's, it's, is it going to be humanoid? I mean, who knows? You know what? I feel the most important thing is being open-minded. That is what science is all about, to be honest. Yeah. You can't research into things if you're closed-minded. 
I've always got this attitude of this is what I think, but it's based on what we know. Uh-huh. And when we get new information, you're going to change the way you're thinking. You know, people make new decisions based on new information. But I will always look into more than one source. Yes, yes, 100%. Always have two or three different sources to look at. If the information that you're getting from all of the sources is coming up with the same results, yes, then there's got to be something in it. Yeah. I mean, Neil, Neil deGrasse Tyson has a great one, isn't it? He says, the great thing about science is that whether you agree with it or not, it doesn't matter, it's the truth. Because there's a science is based on, you know, as you say, testing it again and again and again, proving it, disproving it, getting it ripped apart, and then you literally have, right, this is how it is, you know? Even he has admitted that he's been wrong on several occasions on things. Good, good. That, and that's how it should be, right? It should absolutely be the way. The truth of it is, Mark, I honestly feel that we, we don't really know anything. You know, we, we try and use science to try and understand how things work, you do the best we can, but actually, we're just starting to maybe comprehend what's out there and we've made amazing advances and we'll continue to but there could be discoveries that come around the corner that just changes everything again yeah and that's what makes it exciting and i think that's what makes that what draws people to astronomy as well isn't it it's that curiosity say what is out there what is going to be out there the human way has always been to explore that is why it is important for us to go further as far as we can really Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't know what you think, but Stephen Hawking, was it not he that said that, listen, if there are aliens out there, the last thing we want to be doing is telling them we're here? <laughs> is that not pretty much what you said? <laughs> um, I've seen enough uh, sci-fi movies to, to know that if there is anything out there and they were receiving our radio waves and TV signals and whatnot, they're not going to come anywhere near us. No, <laughs> that's it. Why would they come here? <laughs> They'd be like, oh, no thanks. Uh, next. <laughs> so we've got one last story. And well, we mentioned earlier about the European Southern Observatory. In a creative endeavour outside of their normal field of work, the ESO staff embarked on creating a song and a music video to express their enthusiasm for astronomy in a less than conventional fashion. So a group of scientists rewrote the Kaiser Chief's song, Ruby, to give the world outside an insight to what goes on behind the scenes and even features Peanut from the band The Kaiser Chiefs and has been viewed by over 21,000 people on YouTube. Have a listen to this. So 
Very cool. Hey, I tell you what, I wanted to sing along there. <laughs> you know, <laughs> inspiring people—it's almost like a new audience, isn't it? You know, people that either follow the Kaiser Chiefs or enjoy music in general, and using that as a bridge to um, you know link astronomy and you know these folks together. There are so many songs out there. I think I might put a few of them in the show notes from uh, links to YouTube of the ones that I know of. NASA has created many of them. As as I mentioned to you off the air, the most famous of those is NASA Johnson style. Yeah. <laughs> which is fantastic. Um, I, I don't know how many millions of views that's had, but there's the video and there's also the making of the video as well. <laughs> right. Now, that'd be good to watch. Uh, you, you know what I love about these sort of things is that you have NASA, you know, a serious organization, you know, sharing, you know, the science. There's also it's a serious thing, isn't it? You know, learning about what's out there. But then you have the human element. And this is what it is, you know, the music side, you know, the fun side that it is humans, but it is getting that emotional stuff as well, you know, and because that's what it is, isn't it? You know, the music, music is getting the emotions going and... Absolutely. When I met uh, Matt Taylor for the first time, now Matt Taylor was the chief investigator for the Rosetta mission. All right, yeah, yeah. And I loved his style. Yes. As soon as he walked out on stage, he had the loud shirts and the tattoos yeah. and everything. I thought, this is the kind of scientist I can get. <laughs> um, and when I met him, he's actually one of our honorary crew members as well now. And uh, they say, don't meet your heroes, but uh, he was so much fun to talk to. And then I found out he's also part of the 501st Legion, which is the 
charity side of Star Wars dresses up at weekends as a stormtrooper right and raises money for charity wow. so I thought could I love this guy anymore yeah <laughs> I, I went to I actually went to an open day at um, ESA in in, um, in in Netherlands and he was one of the speakers there everyone's good they all have their specialty but he like literally you cannot forget him can you you absolutely say you're like I knew straight away who you're talking about and like, yep, that's the guy. Um, he's actually got a tattoo of Rosetta on his leg. Right. Yeah, and on his arm, he's got a tattoo of his family as zombies. Right, okay. <laughs> that's the kind of guy he is. Yeah. Uh... <laughs> yeah, it was amazing meeting Matt back in 2018 now, that was. Um, actually, I, I think it may have been, it was either this week or last week, you were on about the open day at ESA. It's been recent that they had one there. That's right. And uh, our friends at Space Rocks actually had a stage at the event. Yeah, I think I saw that. Normally about this time, Ross Hockham from UK Astronomy would bring us his sky guide for the month ahead. But unfortunately, this wasn't possible to go out in time for this podcast. However, Ross has sent us his sky guide for the show notes so that you can all have a look at it. You'll find details on how to get to the show notes at the end of the show. Spanhead Productions are a small independent sound recording company based in rural Hertfordshire. We specialise in creating content for all your podcasting needs, whether it be field recordings, fox pops, or capturing the atmosphere during social events. Editing is a very time-consuming job, so Spanhead Productions are on hand to take away some of the burden for you. Just advise us on how you'd like your content to sound, and we will do the rest. We can even help you design and manage a website for your podcast too. Visit us now, spamheadproductions.weebly.com. That's spamheadproductions.weebly.com. So, Will, how did it feel to be my co-pilot for this special episode? Honestly, I loved it. I just had to stop myself from talking too much. <laughs> <laughs> just go on forever talking about our favourite subject. That's not a bad thing, to be honest, because having too much is better than having not enough. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, I am one of the people that could just go on and on and on, so feel free to cut away. <laughs> you leave it like uh, why did Will only say three words <laughs> the entire thing <laughs> that's been really fun thank you very much really enjoyed it no it's a pleasure having you on it's always good fun and you know when, when you've got somebody who's on the same kind of mindset you, it, it really makes it good fun to, to record yeah definitely now before we wrap up the show I'd just like to say a few things it's hard to believe that we are heading into our ninth season of TGP Nominal the, the podcast has grown beyond all recognition since its conception in 2014 and I never thought that I would be rubbing shoulders with personnel at NASA and ESA and other organisations chatting with the stars and production teams from movies and TV shows and visiting fascinating places of interest, meeting amazing people and of course doing our bit to promote STEM, inclusion and diversity. I need to thank everyone who has been involved with the show over the past year including Ross Ockham, Noah Petro, your good self Will and of course I wouldn't been able to get TGP nominal off the ground without John Berger. Well that leaves me with one thing left to say and that's take care one and all 
Thanks for listening, and we'll speak to you all again real soon. Take care, everyone. Have clear skies and enjoy. Well, that about wraps it up for this episode of TGP Nominal. If you want to get in touch with us, then... Send an email to garbagepod at virginmedia.com, where your input is our output. Or click the social media icons at the top left of the page over at tgpnominal.weebly.com. If you would like to subscribe to any of our podcasts, you can do so via iTunes, the RSS feed, and also Stitcher and TuneIn On Demand Radio. And you can listen to me going solo, bringing you the latest in movies and home theater for regular people in the Widescreen podcast over at widescreen.org. Don't forget to rate and review us. If you like what we're doing here, then why not buy us a pint by clicking on the donate button on any of the podcast pages. And don't forget to spread the word about us. Station, this is Houston ACR. Thank you. That concludes the event.